If you have your Bible, please turn with me to the Gospel according to John, chapter 1. Last summer, I delivered to you a message about the Lord's Supper from 1 Corinthians 11. And on that occasion, I indicated that it's my intention to indulge in a periodic excursus from our ordinary consecutive exposition of Mark in order to preach occasional messages on the Lord's Supper so that we can build up our understanding of this holy sacrament of our Lord and partake of it with the faith and understanding that are necessary for deriving spiritual benefit from it. Today, I'd like to bring you another message related to the Lord's table, and I've entitled this sermon, The Suitable Savior's Satisfying Sacrifice. Our text is found in the Gospel of John chapter 1, just one verse, 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, the Lord's Supper, as the gospel made visible, is instituted by Christ as a gospel epitomizing means of grace. When we observe it, we are not bringing Christ down to us to suffer and be sacrificed again, but rather we are ascending by faith into heavenly places to have communion with the real spiritual presence of Christ through the Spirit. The sacrament commemorates our Lord's death, but it's more than a memorial. It's a covenant meal of God's provision. It's a holy feast for our souls. It's a royal banquet in which our inner person is nourished and satisfied by the goodness of God. It's a help to our spiritual growth that communicates grace to us by a sanctifying infusion of it into our hearts. The Lord's Supper is a priceless gift of Christ to his bride. It's a tangible token of his intangible mercy. It's a pledge of his dying love for his elect. And it's an emblem of his goodwill and blessed intentions toward us. The sanctity of the sacrament demands from us reverent regard and high esteem for it lest we be guilty of treating holy things as common or unclean. But do we really regard and esteem the Holy Supper as we ought? That's the question. In the absolute sense of the matter, none of us does. None of us ever has. We all fall short. Even in our best times of observing the Lord's Supper, even in our most sincere worship, because whenever we approach the Lord's table, you see, we bring a massive sin within us to the table. In Romans 7, Paul laments the sin that dwells within me, he calls it. The sin that dwells within him. That's indwelling sin, even in the most dedicated and sanctified apostle. Because of our internal sin, we can never observe the supper or anything in the worship of God, for that matter, in a perfectly holy and acceptable manner to God as we ought. And therefore, we approach the Lord and his table, never relying on our own worthiness, but trusting in nothing else but the righteousness that Jesus Christ has achieved on our behalf. And that, brethren and friends, is foundational and essential to our 
whole understanding of the Lord's Supper. But I wonder, how many believers have such a deficient and shoddy view of the Supper that they do not consecrate it as holy in their hearts, as Peter says. He says, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. 1 Peter 3.15, setting apart the Lord God in our hearts by esteeming him above all, by having a reverent and high regard for him, by living every moment conscientiously, coram deo, before his face and his presence. All this implies that we should also proportionately sanctify the things that are directly associated with God in our hearts, as the Lord's Supper is. If we should sanctify the Lord God in our hearts, well then, by good and necessary inference, we could say that we should sanctify the things of God in our hearts as well. But how many really do that? How many instead view the supper as just a common thing? Well, there are a couple of common errors that are so prevalent among professing Christians today that we should be watchful of them. First, there are those who view the supper as just a symbol and nothing more. This is a very common notion in evangelical and Baptist circles today who hold to what is called the memorial view of the supper. And as far as they're concerned, partaking of the sacrament is a ritual or symbolic portrayal of the Lord's death on the cross. But that's all that it is. A visible symbol lacking spiritual substance and void of any spiritual efficacy. To them, it's nothing special. Eating the bread and drinking the fruit of the vine is just part of the routine of what Christians do. And that's why they do it. When the Corinthians failed to esteem the supper with the reverence that it is due, the Apostle Paul chided them very clearly. And he wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 16, The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? The Holy Supper, says the apostle, is a communion with the body and blood of Christ. And the Greek word for communion there, koinonia, common word in the New Testament, here means fellowship, sharing, participation. When we partake of the supper, we are not just testifying publicly to our faith in Christ through our engagement with the symbolism, but at a deeper level, we are communing and fellowshipping with the actual presence of the living Christ. The Lord's Supper will not be esteemed or observed with the right kind of faith and understanding unless we grasp the spiritual nature and supernaturalism that's behind it. So that's the first error failing to discern the spiritual nature of the supper. The second is this. There are those who not just view the supper as if it were a mere symbol and nothing more. They might not view it like that, but they partake of the supper as if it were just a symbol and nothing more. Sure, the theologically, they might understand that it's more than just an empty symbol or ritual, but they observe it as if it were merely a ritual. They rush into church with unprepared minds, unprepared hearts. They go through the motions. They sing and pray and listen to the preached word, and they eat and drink of the supper when the time comes. And contrary to the command of Paul in 1 Corinthians 
their partaking of the supper was not preceded by any meaningful preparation or self-examination. They do not partake of it in a spiritual frame of mind or heart. Their hearts, to borrow the language of Thomas Reed, are uh, uh, not exercised, unexercised in holy exercises. Their observance of the supper is not preceded by any contrition, confession, repentance, or resolve to turn more fully from self and sin to Christ and his righteousness. In short, they observe the supper, but they never encounter Christ in the sacrament. They simply observe it and eat and drink and proceed on their way without much additional thought or reflection or transformation of soul. And their souls aren't made the better for it. Well, it's incumbent upon us, brethren, to recognize that in this sacrament, we are dealing with holy things. And holy things require that we would approach them in a holy manner. Colossians 3.2 says, Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. And by mind, what he means is not only our thoughts, but also our affections, heavenly things. Holy things call us to prevent the ordinary cares of life and the daily hustle and bustle from consuming our mental energy such that our minds are preoccupied with that which does not benefit the soul. Brothers and sisters, you can think about your chores and your cares and your toils and snares all throughout the week and at other times. But right now, as our Lord said, one thing is needful, as he said to Martha. One thing is needful. Observing the supper is a call to sit at the master's feet and to be taken up in the awe that accompanies the contemplation of his ineffable glory. If we would truly benefit from our partaking, we must sanctify our thoughts to the conscious, active contemplation of divine things, things of an eternal nature, things of a Christological nature, things that pertain to our salvation. And more specifically, we should ravish our minds with glorious thoughts about the perfections of Christ. As John the Baptist declares in our text, we should look away from ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know our right of access to the table is not because of our own holiness. It's only because of the wrath of pacifying death of Christ whom we apprehend by faith alone and it is of paramount import then that as we approach the table we would do so only as we are contemplating the glories of Christ who is both our priest who institutes the sacrament as well as our sacrifice that we feast upon as we celebrate the sacrament. And so let's purpose in our minds to meditate on the glories of Christ and on the privilege of our saving interest in him as we gather around John the Baptist's proclamation and look to the one to whom he points. Consider our text speaks of a suitable savior and a satisfying sacrifice and a saving look. First of all, a suitable Savior. Verse 29, it's our text. The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God. Let's put this in its context. Israel was waiting for the promised Messiah. Many centuries had passed since the Lord promised that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. Expectancy and anticipation of the Messiah were prevalent 
in all quarters. And here John appears on the scene, anointed with the Spirit, endowed with the gifting and power of the prophet Elijah. He preaches like no one in that generation had ever heard. And you remember, he starts preaching about six months before Christ does. They had never heard anything like it. But as he was standing there, the crowds, as they're listening, as they're melted by his prophetic insight, as they're cut to the heart by the piercing conviction of his words, the crowds would have wondered if John himself wasn't their anticipated savior. But as John was standing there and the crowd's eyes were fixed upon him, here comes Jesus approaching. And John doesn't hesitate. As soon as John lays eyes on Jesus, he cries out, this is the one. This is the peace and consolation of Israel. Here is the Savior. Behold the one who will take away our sins. He's the one who will accomplish what the thousands upon thousands and tens of thousands of Levitical priests with all their worship, with all their cultic observance, with all their sacrifices were never able to do. Here is the one, here is the one who takes away sin. Here is a sight that delights the eye of faith and that satisfies the sin-afflicted soul. And as he points to the man from Nazareth and calls attention to his redemptive role as the Lamb of God, John is calling us to consider who Jesus is, specifically his messianic identity and his redemptive mission. Well, here's an important Christological title, the Lamb of God, the Lamb of of God, that's his title, names and titles can be very important in salvation history. When God in the scriptures reveals himself by his names, those names give us insight into his nature. Those names reveal his distinctive qualities and matchless excellencies. When God reveals himself as Elohim, God Almighty. He's calling attention to his deity and supremacy and power. When he reveals himself as Yahweh, I am, he's emphasizing his aseity and otherness and covenant faithfulness. When he reveals himself as Yahweh Rapha, the Lord our healer, He's pointing to his grace by which he covenants to supersede the consequences of the Edenic death curse. As Adonai, our Lord, he discloses his absolute and exhaustive sovereignty over every square inch of our existence. Well, just as the Father is God, so also the Son is God. And the Son shares the names and the titles and the attributes and the nature and the glories and the excellencies of his Father. And the Son of God is here revealed in our text as the Lamb, the Lamb of God. It's analogous to the divine titles that preceded this in salvation history. But this is a special title that bears a peculiar glory, for it's a redemptive title that the son assumed when he clothed himself in Adamic flesh to be the savior of the world. He became the lamb of God. The eternal son of God became the lamb of God in his enfleshment. Now the gospel of John makes much of Christological titles. And so it's helpful to understand Christ's title as the Lamb of God within the immediate context of the other titles that appear, especially in the prologue. These titles of Christ 
all occur in John chapter 1. Listen to this. In verse 1, he is the word of God, the logos, who is equated with God's wisdom. He's equal to God, yet distinct from God, and intimate with God. Because he says, Kaiologos ein proston theon, which means literally in the Greek, and the word was face-to-face with God. He was mutually indwelling the very presence of God. Well, he is the word. He is the revelation of the Father. In verse 9, he's called the true light, who gives us the certainty of saving knowledge and expels our darkness. In verse 14, he's called the only begotten of the Father. And that act of begetting did not transpire in time but in eternity he is eternally generated within the father's bosom and therefore he is fit to reveal to us all the glory of God in verse 34 he's called the son of God possessing the entire likeness and nature and attributes of the father he is ontologically equal to the father in godhood in verse 38 he's called rabbi teacher he's the one who came to expel the darkness of sin's effects on our minds to overcome by the light of his gospel the noetic effects of sin which enslave our minds in ignorance to god he gives us saving illumination and he brings the truth that makes us free. In verse 41, he's called the Messiah, the anointed one. He delivers us as our king. He discloses God to us as our prophet and intercedes for us as our anointed priest. In verse 49, he's the king of Israel who will liberate his oppressed people and rule all nations with a rod of iron. And in verse 51, he's called the Son of Man, foretold by Daniel, who comes in the clouds of heaven and freely approaches the presence of the Father. Each one of these titles is nothing less than divine. As the names of God reveal the nature of God, so the names of Christ reveal his divine nature, his matchless attributes, and his distinctive excellencies. The Gospel of John thus begins with a full-orbed, radiant display of the majesty of God's Messiah, and it multiplies Christological titles to set before our mind's eye the glory of Christ and his divine nature. And now consider the implications that these divine titles have when we combine them with the Christological title that appears in our text in verse 29. The divine son, the very God who dwells with God and is God and has no blood, has become the lamb who has shed his blood. He has assumed a fleshly nature that he might be a bloody sacrifice to propitiate the wrath of the Father for our sins. And so the word of God becoming the Lamb of God means that divinity and humanity unite. Omnipotence is clothed with the frailty of flesh. Omnipresence tabernacles in the habitation of a real creaturely nature and in union with a real creaturely body. And that's what makes him different. You see, utterly different, unique, in a category all his own, set apart from every other lamb that God had ever provided. This lamb is different from every one of those countless thousands of lambs offered on Israel's altars. All those other lambs were lambs of God commanded by him and, in a sense, provided by him as the creator. But this lamb is the lamb of God. Not a lamb, but the lamb of God. Distinct in dignity, awesome in his attributes, 
in a category all his own. His identity as the divine lamb uniquely equips him to secure our salvation. He's a suitable savior because he is well fitted for this task. He was the spotless lamb of God, perfectly qualified in every way to be our sacrifice. And the fullness and sufficiency of the salvation that he provides for us, brethren, is as full and sufficient as the greatness of his person as the divine lamb from God. The worth of his sacrifice derives from the infinite worthiness of his person. Hence, no wonder the song of the redeemed in glory says, Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Revelation 5.12. And so the text is basically saying to us, behold who Jesus is, who gives himself for you. He is the divine Messiah. The eternal word has become flesh. He's become the Lamb of God. And the Lord's Supper calls us to consider the same thing that our text calls us to. It tells us, consider who Jesus Christ is who gave himself for you. The preached word is the word made audible, but the Lord's table is the word made tangible. The sacrament is, as Augustine put it, the visible word of God. The promise of God made concrete and commended to you for your good as a help to your faith. And just as the Lord Jesus, with all his grace, was visible to John that day, so Christ, symbolized by the elements, just as visibly commends himself to our tangible senses. Dear believer, this bread and wine represents Christ coming to you. Christ covenanting himself to you. Christ drawing near to promise you his pardon, to assure you of eternal life, to guarantee you never dying glory, and to thrill your deepest needs and longings with unspeakable contentment and joy forever. And he's able to do all that because he's a suitable savior, sufficient in every way. Christ And the supper, he's offering himself to you, his entire self, the whole Christ with the fullness of his grace. And he's altogether more than adequate. And so by the suitableness of this divine savior, there is abundant provision for you to meet your every spiritual need. Just as uh, bread and wine are suitable to feed our body, so Christ with his body and blood is perfect food for our souls. And because he is suitable as the all-sufficient Lamb of God, his sacrifice is completely satisfying, which is our next point. A satisfying sacrifice. The text says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The lamb who is infinitely worthy in himself has become the sacrifice, the all-sufficient sacrifice that takes away the sin of the world. And it's a sacrifice that in its merit and in its intention and purpose and goal is effective because it's a sacrifice that satisfies the justice of God. To understand this aright, we need to put it in its context relative to salvation history. Well, John the Baptist was speaking to an audience that was still under the Old Covenant and under the administration of the Mosaic economy. The pious were burdened by the requirements of the yoke of the law. 
they knew that the law, strictly considered, demanded perfect righteousness. But they also knew by experience that that very law was incapable of providing the righteousness that they needed. Israel had been graciously redeemed from Egypt and was in a gracious covenant with God, but nonetheless, the then-current system of that mosaic economy with its entire sacrificial cultus was imperfect. It was provisionary and typological and pointing forward to something else. And thus, Israelites felt incomplete under that system as they waited for the fullness of the Lord's salvation to come. That's what the author to the Hebrews says, Hebrews chapter 11, verses 39 to 40. They, apart from us, were not made perfect or complete. The promises were made that had not yet been fulfilled. Righteousness was predicted, but it had not yet been established. The author to the Hebrews tells us that in spite of all the daily and monthly and annual sacrifices, there yet remained a continual consciousness of sin. Consciousness of sin. A contaminated sense of guilt on the conscience. A consciousness of their guilt and liability to God's wrath on account of their sin, a great problem and dilemma that, as of then, had not yet received the definitive, divinely provided solution. Sacrifices were offered by the priests day after day, every single day, morning and evening, year after year, but none of them could fully nor finally atone for a single sin. The justice of God remained unsatisfied while the belly of the cultic system devoured an endless multitude of lambs and animals. 10,000, even 10 million lambs could be slaughtered and offered on that altar. You could make their blood flow out like a river and you could take the sinner and plunge him into that river of blood 10,000 times and it would not acquit the stain of the guilt of a single sin. The prophet Micah expresses this in chapter 6, verses 6 to 7 of the book of his prophecy. And he says, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the Most High? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Some of us, might feel that way. Has the stain of grievous sin gotten you down? Do you have a continual consciousness of sins, as Hebrews says, an unabating sense of guilt that jolts your peace and robs your assurance? Like Israel attempting to satisfy the law through their countless sacrifices, Maybe you try to satisfy your guilt and your conscience through your own kind of law-keeping. That'll never work. All your sacrifices will not satisfy God. And if you're honest with yourself, they don't even satisfy your own conscience. Imperfect works can never satisfy the demands of the perfect moral law of God. You need a better provision, one of God's own supply. Well, you remember when Abraham and Isaac went up to Mount Moriah in Genesis 22. The question of provision was the very question that came up. Remember Isaac's question? And in fact, when John the Baptist called Christ the Lamb of God, this is most probably the foundational passage in the Old Testament that the Baptist 
is alluding to. But you remember when Abraham and Isaac went up to Mount Moriah, what was Isaac's question? Where is the lamb? Verses 7 to 8 of Genesis 22, Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, then he said, Here am I, my son. Then he said, Look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, Listen to these words. I love this response. Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. He'll provide it for himself. He doesn't need our help. He'll provide it for himself. He'll do it all. The Lord had commanded Abraham to sacrifice Isaac as a burnt offering. And Isaac wasn't aware that He would be the offering yet. So naturally, as they journeyed up Mount Moriah without a lamb, Isaac wondered why there was no lamb. And it was a grievous trial for Abraham. Just think of the brokenness of this beloved father Abraham's heart as he hears his own beloved Isaac ask him, where is the lamb? God himself will provide a lamb. Abraham's words are contrary to all that could be observed by sight, to all that could be observed by sensory experience. And Abraham uttered the response of faith. God will provide for himself a lamb. That's what faith does. Faith confesses the gracious provision of God. Faith says, I am inadequate. I am insufficient. I have no provision to offer to my Lord and my King and my God. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. And we know the story. As Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son, The angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, here I am. And the angel assured him that it was a test and prevented him from slaying his son. But what then about the offering to the Lord? Well, the Lord took care of that. Verse 13 says, then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked. And there was behind him a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. A ram was a type of lamb. And it says, Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. Glorious words there. Instead of his son. The ram died in the place instead of Isaac as the substitute of Isaac. The lamb took the knife so that Isaac wouldn't have to. The lamb experienced death so that Isaac could live. The lamb was condemned so Isaac could be justified and vindicated. The lamb substituted for Isaac. And that's what, that's what the lamb of God does. Verse 14 says, Genesis 22, Abraham called the name of the place Jehovah-Jireh. The Lord will provide, as it is said this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. The Lord saw to the provision of the lamb, and the lamb satisfied the Lord with that provision. And that's all a picture for us. It's all a picture As a background to our text, it informs us precisely what John the Baptist meant when he cried, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This Lamb is, as he put it, of God. He doesn't just say, Behold the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. He says, Behold the Lamb of God, of God, who takes away the sin. And what he means by that is that God is the source of the lamb. In other words, God provides the lamb. The lamb comes from God. 
the Father sent the Son to become the Lamb who would die in the place and stead of his people as the vicarious, sin-bearing substitute whereby they are justified. By the law, God makes the demand. By the gospel, he supplies the Lamb. The one who demands is the one who supplies. And that lamb alone satisfies the law. And that's what you call grace. And the mount of the Lord, it was provided. First at Moriah, then at Mount Calvary. The lamb of God did what no other lamb could do. His sacrifice, once and for all, satisfied God's eternal wrath toward his people. Hebrews 10, 11 to 14 says, speaking of the Levitical priests, every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God from that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. And that's what John 1.29 is getting at when the Baptist points to this lamb who takes away the sin of the world. He takes it away. The Greek word translated takes away, airo, communicates the idea of lifting up and removing as if one is carrying a burden and another comes and leaves them of that burden by lifting it off their shoulders and carrying it away. Christ lifted our sin as he bore our sins in his own body on that tree. 1 Peter 2.24 As Isaiah 53.4 put it, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. The lamb has borne and carried away our sin. He's like the scapegoat sent out into the wilderness, sent out into oblivion, sent out in the land of forgetfulness, never to return and never to bother you again with a condemnatory, conscious reminder of your sin and guilt. So as the text calls Christ the Lamb, it, can, it calls us to consider the person of Christ, and it calls us to contemplate his work, whereby he takes away our sin. And the Lord's Supper does likewise. It calls us to commemorate Christ's satisfying sacrifice on the cross. Because every time we partake of the supper, Paul says, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. As we eat of Christ's flesh and drink of his blood, we are confessing publicly that in the mount of the Lord it has been provided, that our faith is in him. We are declaring that our trust is in God's provision who has so graciously spread this feast of faith before our eyes. And we are announcing that all our trust and all our hope is in Christ's perfect, finished work as the Lamb our Father provided. Well, now that we've considered how suitable is Christ's person and how satisfying is his work, let's apply the words now more appropriately to our observance of the sacrament as we home in on this word, behold. And that brings us to our final point. He says, behold. Behold the Lamb of God. That's an, an, an exclamatory remark that was intended to get the attention of all. It calls all attention to Christ. Although the Baptists wanted to draw the literal attention of all the crowds to Jesus, in fact, his words go beyond what would be entailed by a physical 
look of the eyes. The Gospel of John repeatedly intends a deeper spiritual meaning behind its words. There is the literal surface level meaning of what he's saying, and then there's the deeper spiritual significance only the discerning reader will see. And that deeper spiritual significance requires faith to be able to perceive it. Well, that's what's happening here. There's this twofold sense. There's this deeper spiritual sense behind what John is saying. By drawing attention to the Lamb of God, the gospel is calling all its readers to look beyond the historical circumstances to behold this Lamb with the eye of faith. It's calling us all to look beyond a mere carnal or natural glimpse upon Christ and to look upon Christ with faith. It's calling us to a saving sight of the Son of God. The scripture calls us to fix our gaze upon Christ and to set our minds and affections upon him. And it's as if John is saying when he declares, Behold the Lamb. It's as if he's saying, look unto him and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for he is the divine lamb and there is none else. The Lord would also have us to look to him through and beyond the sacrament of the table. We shouldn't allow our short-sightedness to confine us to the physicality of what's in front of us. For we do not observe this sacrament as if it were nothing more than a physical ritual. As the eye of unbelief could look upon Christ and see nothing special, so the eye of unbelief likewise can look upon the Holy Supper and not see anything in addition to a physical rite. Beware of it. Beware of it. As Paul said, this is the communion of the body and blood of Christ. And so meditating on the word, we should ascend by faith through these elements to the place of intimate communion with our Lord. As you look upon the bread, let your faith go out and fix itself on the fact that his body was broken under the divine curse for your sins. As you look upon the cup, let your faith confide in his bleeding love and his love that's stronger than death, as the Song of Songs puts it. As the text proclaims, behold the Lamb of God, so let your faith respond like Solomon's Shulamite and say to the Lord, behold, you are handsome, my beloved, yes, pleasant. You are pleasant. You are the pleasure of my heart and my soul. You are altogether lovely, my Lord. You are altogether everything I need or want. You are altogether the fairest among 10,000. As we approach the Lord's table, I ask you, have you beheld the Lamb of God with saving faith? Are you looking upon him now with a true sight of him, with a vital and healthy sight of him, with a full and clear vision of who he is and the glorious, gracious work that he's done for your soul. Different persons may be looking upon this lamb in different ways, and sadly, some don't look upon him at all. There are those who have not beheld the lamb at all, And they know it. They've never beheld him. They've never looked upon him with the gaze of faith. And if that's you, dear friend, I ask, what are you waiting for? An opportunate time? Paul says, behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. 2 Corinthians 6, 2. This is the opportunate time. Or maybe your eyes are fixed on temporal pursuits, your worldly plans, your profitable pursuits. Do you think 
you would like to be able to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, thinking you will look to Christ in faith only after you've spent your strength and primary energies in life on pursuing your carnal pleasures. Remember what happened to the rich man in the parable who said, I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. And God said to him, fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? Many fine people in the prime of life have been cut off suddenly, snatched away unexpectedly by an untimely death, and the good resolutions to settle their accounts with God were never realized, tragically never realized. Oh, the Baptist cries, Behold the Lamb of God! Don't wait! Behold him now! Look upon him at once! Don't fluctuate! Don't hesitate and don't procrastinate. Do you think that you can stand by on the sidelines and be an idle onlooker while the prophet says to behold the lamb at once? Gazing upon him from a distance and noncommittal will not suffice. There is no place for neutrality here. Behold the lamb in faith. Go out and follow him or else perish. In your unbelief. He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. He who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given of his Son. 1 John 5.10 Procrastination, a refusal to embrace Christ at this very moment by faith is to call God a liar. Christ will have no idle spectators in his kingdom. He says, Luke eleven twenty three. 23, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. And so behold the lamb. Gather with the lamb. Follow the lamb. He's calling out to you now. And if you refuse to behold him as your all-sufficient sacrifice, he may just pass you by. And hand you over to the hardness of your heart and seal your judgment once and for all. Don't resist his call. Don't resist the Holy Spirit of God who woos you and moves you and implores you to behold the Lamb of God. And if you've never looked to Christ in saving faith, then you have no right to come to the Lord's table now but you do have the right and invitation to come to Christ right now. You have his promise that if you do, he will receive you, and his word never fails. So come to the open arms of the Lamb of God at once, dear friend. Come at once. Oh, come at once. And if you will not trust him as your lamb now, you will meet him as your lion in a short time from now. And when the ferocity of this lion, this lamb-turned-lion, is unleashed, it will be anything but tame or bearable. Others, there are others who think they have beheld the lamb, but have not. The first have not beheld him, and they know it. But then there are those who think that they have beheld him and have not. Like many in the crowds who looked upon Jesus when John cried out but didn't believe. So there are many who have notions about Jesus but have never exercised personal trust in his finished work as the Lamb of God. Like some in the crowd standing around who observe Jesus' features. There are many who sit under his word in the church today who observe but in a carnal manner. All their appreciation for him is in the mind and notions, but not in the heart and affections. Like the multitudes that flocked after Jesus, but never believed savingly, there are many who are 
interested in Christ and Christianity, but not interested enough to walk the narrow path in the pursuit of him. There are many who like to hear his doctrine, but few willing to submit to its yoke. To behold the Lamb is not just to learn about him, it's to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow him. So don't just look upon Christ to evaluate. Look upon Christ with a faith that appropriates him and his benefits to yourself. Many have knowledge, but despite their knowledge, they do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Such people have no right to approach the Lord's table. But, like the former class of people that I mentioned, although they have no right of access to the table of the Lord, they do have the invitation and the offer and the command to come to Christ. And if I'm describing you, oh, I implore you to fall prostrate before his presence and beg of him before you leave this place that he would have mercy on your soul. Well, there are others who behold the lamb, but they think that perhaps they do not. They do behold the lamb, but they think that perhaps they do not. Well, it's not only a very strong faith that is efficacious to appropriate Christ and save the soul, but faith, faith in any measure, any measure of true faith, no matter how feeble or small. The same John the Baptist who cried out, Behold the Lamb of God, later apparently doubted as to whether Jesus was the true Messiah. But Christ didn't reject him for his doubts. He graciously condescended to John's weakness and performed signs and sent John's disciples back to the prison with the words of Isaiah's prophecy in order to sustain and help and support John the Baptist's fluctuating faith. He gave John exactly what John's faith most needed to sustain and persevere in the hour of his trial. And John's feeble faith was sustained, therefore, by the grace of God. And his fluctuating faith, even in that moment of doubt, was just as efficacious for eternal salvation as was the more robust faith of any of the Lord's foremost apostles. Well, dear brother or sister, if you have beheld the Lamb but think perhaps you have not, you do have a right of access to the table. If you are abominating your flesh and trusting as in Christ alone as your entire righteousness before God, if you are sincerely observing the means of grace, faithfully congregating with Christ's church, spurning sin, pursuing what is right, lamenting the feeble nature of your faith, then come to the Lord's table. In this sacrament, Christ, Christ graciously condescends to you as he did to John the Baptist and offers you what your faith needs to sustain and thrive. His promises, his sacrament, his body and blood all pledge to you for your salvation. You think you may have no right to come, but Christ says to you, as he said to Moses, I know you by name, and you have found grace in my sight. He extends the invitation to sup with him in his kingdom. He pledges to cover your unworthiness with the white garment of his spotless righteousness. Do not be ashamed then to come, because he is not ashamed to call us brethren. Come to the table. And let your, fee your feeble faith feed on the Lamb of God to your soul's satisfaction. Come nourish your inner man. You who hunger and thirst, come. Buy and eat without money and without price. Build up your faith with this, which is meat and indeed and drink indeed and true spiritual sustenance.
Well, there are also those who behold the lamb, but their vision of him is obscured. Their vision of him is obscured. Many things can obscure our sight of God's lamb. Strong temptations can disturb our peace and draw our focus away from Christ's sufferings and glory on our behalf so that we fret too much about our trials and get overwhelmed and consumed by them. The vigor of our faith is diminished because the strength of the trial consumes our focus. And at times like that, we need to purpose even more intensely to meditate on our saving interest in the sufferings of Christ and the glories which are to follow. We need to scrutinize our souls, brethren, and we need to try the authenticity of our graces by the crucible of the word. Any impurity, any sinful compromise must be confessed and forsaken at once. The Lord's table calls us to renew our repentance and to covenant ourselves anew to the living Christ who by the sacrament covenants himself to us. Well, as we approach the Lord's table, this is the time to examine yourself. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight. Let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. If you've been harboring willful, voluntary, persistent, habitual sin in your heart, let it go now. Yield it to the Lord. Put it under the blood. Yield it to Christ. Beg of him that he would cleanse you in the fountain of his blood open for sin and uncleanness. If you have given grounds for your brother to take offense at you, then leave your gift on the altar and go be reconciled with your brother and then come partake of the sacrament. If you harbor any grudge against a fellow believer, then it's obscuring your sight of Christ. You gotta make it right. And you gotta make it right at once. Your right of access to the table depends on whether you sincerely on whether you will sincerely cast aside the sin that besets you. The Lord's Supper reminds you that the Lamb does indeed take away the sin of the world, and it pledges to you God's promise that he who covers his sin will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. Proverbs 28, 13. And finally, there are those who behold God's Lamb, and their vision of him is full, gloriously full and robust and clear. Their right of access to the table is therefore unquestionable. And by this sacrament, the Lord would give them an even fuller, clearer, more robust sight of himself. And so come with a sincere resolution, if I'm describing you, to lead a more resolute, circumspect, and holy life. Come with gratitude, giving thanks to the Lord for the cup of his salvation. Come with joy to the table, knowing that you eat and drink in pledge of the consummate communion that you'll have with Christ when he comes in his kingdom. Come with a heart full of love, the love of God shed abroad in your heart by the Holy Ghost, which is given to us, knowing that you love your Savior only because he first loved you. Heed the voice of the Lord who calls out to you in the Song of Songs, chapter 2 and verse 10. Rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. That's what Christ is saying to you. Rise up and come away with me. Your bridegroom has spread out his table before you, and he says to you, as Song of Songs 5.1 says, Eat, O friends, drink, yes, drink deeply, O beloved ones. Eat and drink of the fullness of Christ, and so satisfy your soul with this all-sufficient grace of the Savior. Amen. Let's pray.
our great God, we do thank you, Father, that you are so kind to us, Lord, that you have given us not only your word, but your sacraments, which communicate the truth of your word to us, which so clearly portray the gospel before our eyes. Oh, Lord, may not a single person depart from this place without looking upon Christ as their own all-sufficient Lamb of God. And as we partake of this sacrament here in a moment, Lord, please do bless our observance as we worship you through it. In Christ's name, amen. <laughs> 